0: Let's pray. God, thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless them here. In Jesus' name, amen. So here at Regeneration, we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, precept upon precept. And we're studying the book of 1 Samuel, and we are in chapter 9. And so we're going to go through chapter 9, and then we're going to stop at verse 16 of chapter 10. And our text today is about the selection and the ratification of leadership. So... How does one know that they're selected for ministry or leadership in the church? How does one know that they are called? How do, how do I know that it's a call from God? And how does the group that I lead know that I'm called of God? So there, be, there may be more than one way to look at this today. And our text today and the, the next few chapters will be dealing with the extensive answers to those questions. Now according to 1 Samuel chapter 9, through chapter 11. It's a, it's a three-step process. And we'll take a look at the first step in, in today's study. We'll take a look at the other steps in uh, the following weeks. And now as we look at this process, I think we have to ask ourselves a couple of very important questions. One of them is, how does God work? And then the second one is, what are His ways? Because even if the people uh, make a decision that is contrary to God's ways, and in this case it's choosing a king if you go back to chapter 8 god still works god is still in control so verse 1 chapter 9 there was a man of a, of benjamin whose name was kish the son of abiel the son of zerah the son of becherath the son of Aphiah, a benjamite a mighty man of power and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of israel From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zeph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So, from these verses, we see that Saul looks like our very own Nate. You know, tall, good looking man, comes from a good family. What was Saul looking for? Was he looking to be a king? Was he looking for advancement in his dad's little kingdom thing or something? No, right. Saul was merely doing the duty, and he was looking for some of his dad's property. That's what he was doing. Now, the best way to hear the call of God is to just go about doing your duty. It's much like Samuel. Samuel was about his duty as a servant, as a as a temple uh, servant at Shiloh. When he heard the call of God, he was just doing his duty. And keep in mind that Samuel had had just been hurt by the church in chapter 8, right? With, With them not agreeing with their ways of leadership. And they wanted a king, and Samuel knew it was the wrong move in that context. God told Samuel that the people weren't rejecting Samuel, that they were rejecting him. And even though he was hurt, he knew that he was called. So he kept serving the people of Israel, even though they disagreed with him. And even though he was hurt by them, he was rejected by them. He still pressed on. He still served them. He didn't throw a cow and head off some extended alone time. He just continued to serve Israel in the way that he could. And he goes on serving the people in less than ideal circumstances. And you know, sometimes we have to do this. Some of you have to do this in your workplace where changes have happened in your workplace that you don't like. But if it doesn't go against your worldview, your morals, your values, your beliefs, you you press on. You press on. And that's what Samuel does. Samuel had to deal with less than ideal circumstances, and he moved forward rather than pulling away. And do you notice God does uh, the same thing as well? The people went against what God wanted, yet God still remains faithful. The people were wrong, and God still continued to work among them. And God is revealing to us who he is and what his ways are. And we'll see how God works here. And one of those ways is that he uses very ordinary things. Really ordinary things. He uses lost donkeys. Very ordinary. Right? It would be like us talking about our car not starting up. That's what it would be like. It's, you know, it's something that's important to our livelihood. We need it for transportation. We need it to haul cargo. And so then you get this frustration from the servant and from Saul on this quest for these lost donkeys as they're looking just all over the place and they can't find them. And it's just this typical occurrence that we go through, isn't it? That we don't find things that we we're looking for. Now, why does the narrator spend so much time talking about lost property? What importance does that have for the selection of a king? Well, this, this story is, is quite an idyllic one. It's it's about someone who's trying to find something who winds up being found. And it's it's what good movies are made of, right? So this, this is a good story. Here's verse 6. And he said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let's go there perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, look, I have here at hand one fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called the prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water, and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city, because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel, coming out out toward them on his way up to the high place. Saul and his servant have this debate about finding these donkeys, and the servant, Uh, won that debate and and they decided to seek out the prophet because they needed help finding their property namely donkeys and you notice from these verses how well regarded samuel the prophet is because they won't even eat until he has arrived and you also notice all the timing in this it's not like this is a place he goes to all the time the timing is uncanny that samuel is right there right then for this encounter with saul Verse 15, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. In these verses we see the providence of God. What is the purpose for Samuel anointing Saul? It's found in verse 16, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Now you look at leadership and leaders, and leaders are not given their position so they can be special, but so that they can specially help others. We are to lead for the sake of others' needs. So leadership has no validation except in serving. And you notice this. Remember in chapter 8 how Israel rejected God's better way of providing leadership? And even though they rejected God, He didn't reject them. He still loved them. And you look at the end of verse 16. For I have looked upon My people because their cry has come to Me. God still hears their cry. Even after that rejection, God still hears them. And God is modeling for us what real leadership qualities are. God knows they are worried about the Philistines. And even though they haven't shown God the, the trust that they should have in Him, He's still concerned about their needs. And this is another way that God works. His burden is always on the welfare of His people you look at how many times in verses 16 and 17 that the phrase, my people, is used. It's used four times in those two verses. So you can see that God is obsessed with His people and with their welfare. He can't stop thinking about them. And it's the very same people of chapter 8 who rejected him. The very people that don't want him as their king. And they want someone else to be king over them at the wrong time. Still God is looking to deliver them and rescue them. God cares for them and loves them no matter what. Even if they reject him. And isn't that a comforting thought for us? That despite our stubbornness, our stupidity, and our foolishness, that our God's love and His care never ceases. God is resolute when it comes to our needs, and we are the center of His attention. And He cares deeply about our welfare. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, it says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now looking at verse 29 in the Greek, it actually reads a little differently. Verse 29 reads, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. But a more accurate translation would be, What the Father has given me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So it's not saying that the father isn't greater than all but in this particular text Jesus is saying that what the father has given to Jesus is greatest is greater than all. What was given? His people. His people were given. What the father has given me is greater than all. God is saying nothing matters more than my people. Nothing. You are the most important thing to God. No one will be able to take them away from Jesus or his Father. That's why Jesus died for you. The only price that can be paid is the Son of God's blood. That's how much you're worth. Nothing else would count. You matter more. So you're what's most important to God. Now back to Samuel. Now how did Samuel know that Saul was the man? Saul was the man. God told him. That's what he did. He told him. Verse 16, God told Samuel the day before Saul arrived from what tribe he would be from. And then in verse 17, God reaffirms the selection when Samuel saw Saul. God told him. There he is, the man I, of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. It wasn't any drawn out processes or anything like that. He told them. It was that simple. How in the world did Saul just happen to be where the prophet was? To what occasion can we credit this fateful meeting of Samuel and Saul? And we could look at it one way and say it, it, was, it was a search for donkeys. That's how it happened. Or we can take a word from theologians, and it's this word called Providence providence God providing us with his sovereign will through the smallest of things through the smallest details what seemed like a chance meeting between Samuel and Saul due to Saul's search for his dad's donkeys was actually the hand of God Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9 a man's heart plans his way but the Lord directs his steps Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? It's all about God. God told him. Looking at verses 16 and 17, it's clear that the author is telling us that it was God's initiative that was behind all of this. And what Saul thought was a donkey hunt became the beginning of his anointing as Israel's king verse 18 Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, "Please tell me, where is the seer's house?" Samuel answered Saul and said, "I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will let, and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost 3 days ago, do not be anxious about them for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house?" And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Saul must have just been pretty amazed by Samuel. Like, what in the world? This guy is definitely a seer. He's definitely a prophet. He must have thought, how in the world did he even know about my donkeys? I didn't say anything about my donkeys. He knew I was looking for donkeys. So Saul's totally caught off guard here. And according to verse 21, Saul has this pretty modest response. right? And it can be interpreted a few ways. It could be that he's just being polite or, or that he's just shy or that he's just self-effacing or maybe he's just not that assertive or that he's not that self-confident. Whatever it is, we're going to see a preferential treatment by Samuel and that Saul was caught off guard with all of this preferential treatment. Verse 22, Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh which, with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is. What was kept back? It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. It's obvious that Samuel was giving Saul this great courtesy. And this, was, this wasn't something that he did with every person that sought him, that sought counsel from him, that sought him as a seer. And we read that Saul got special food, special seating, that there was concern over his lodging, like stay at the high place, and there was concern on his welfare. And Saul's just clueless as to what's going on here. He, he wasn't seeking a position. He wasn't seeking a place of honor. But Samuel knew from God that Saul would be king. That Saul was called to this leadership position. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There, are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man." And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. What were the three signs given to Saul? The first one, the meeting of the two men at Rachel's tomb, who will speak about the found donkeys. We see that in verse 2. The second sign, the meeting of the three men going to Bethel who will give them two loaves of bread. And that's verses 3 and 4. And then the third sign, the meeting of the group of men who are prophesying and, and, that's, and then Saul will join them, verses 5 and 6. Do you notice how descriptive these signs are? They're not generalities or elusive in any way. These are full of details. It's not like a Chinese fortune in a cookie, right? Like, a, oh, a pleasant surprise is awaiting for you yeah, right. it's very general, but, but then I, I, have to, I have to give them credit. The other side is pretty descriptive, though, right? 16, 19, 23. That's very descriptive. So So I guess it can be t- detailed. But you get the point. So do you notice how precise these signs are? Like look at the exact location Samuel is giving to Saul. These signs are very specific. Samuel had this supernatural insight, and he let Saul into what he was what, what to look for. Now why are these signs given to Saul? Why did these what, what did these signs do for Saul? They confirmed to Saul, they affirmed to Saul that that's what Samuel said in chapter 10 verse 1 was true when he asked him, "Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance?" It was such a far-fetched idea to think that some hillbilly kid with looking for donkeys was going to become a king of a nation. There's no way. So these confirmations were needed to to see that what Samuel said was true. Saul had to be assured that this was true. Now what place do signs have in our lives today? Do people still have them? Have Have you ever heard of someone being given a sign as a confirmation to do a particular task? See, God still gives assurances to his people. And this usually isn't done through uh, revelation as it was done for Samuel, but it, it's done with his providence. And I'm sure one, one of us has a story of, of some assurance. The, the day I proposed to Katie, man, I had cold feet. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I, I had all these fears. I had all these insecurities about marriage. So I asked God for some signs. For him to show me that this was, this was good, that this was right, and to confirm to me that it was okay. So, so we're in Biarritz, France, and out of nowhere is this rainbow. And, and with that rainbow came all these, these promises, the flood of promises that came to my mind that were in God's word. All these promises, and I thought to myself, that it? And I just wasn't sure. I was that? I mean, it didn't rain. It didn't anything. Like all of a sudden, a rainbow. I'm like, no, it's not. So then I asked God for something more. And and as we got to our destination, there's this humongous cross on the top of the hill. And I thought to myself, a cross in France? Like that can't be. I was like. I wasn't expecting of anything of any religious importance at all to be in France, let alone this gigantic cross with a crown of thorns and, and this robe on it. And then, and then with this cross came all these thoughts that God gave me. And he was telling me that, that if, I, if I just look to him, everything's going to be okay. That if I died to myself in service to him and in my marriage, that everything's going to be okay. And I had this incredible peace after the Lord placed those two significant signs in front of me that I interpreted as confirmations, that I interpreted as affirmations. Now you look at verse 8 again. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And prior to that, we're given all of these dramatic signs where Saul is being told of God's Word through God's prophet. But you notice in verse 8 that even Saul, the king, the king-to-be, must submit to God's direction, must submit to God's Word through God's prophet Samuel. He still has to submit. He's not like king of all, do whatever I want. I'm king, listen to me. He's still in submission. Saul, as king, still needs to submit to God and his prophet. Verse nine. So it was when he had turned his way back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Do you notice that it's the third sign that draws attention from the author of Samuel? It's not the other two. And the only elaboration is in verse 9. And so it begs the question why that one? Why just that one? Why is it so? important about that particular experience and why is it important for Saul to have a changed heart and we see that God changed Saul's heart and it wasn't something that he earned it wasn't something that he worked for it wasn't something that he had to prove or place on a resume or go to some school or whatever it is grace that calls not something that we earn and we don't know of anything that Saul did to deserve the call It's all God. There's something interesting about the word prophesying in verse 13. and In ancient Hebrew, prophesying refers to charismatic behavior or ecstatic behavior. And the form it took in those days really isn't clear. But Saul's behavior causes quite a stir, causes quite a surprise in this community. And what is clear is that Saul was spiritually anointed as well as personally anointed by prophet Samuel. And in between the two anointings came the confirming signs that let Saul know that he was to be king. Now, would it scare you uh, to do what some believers seem so free in doing like speaking in tongues? Just kind of out do it. All right, do charismatic behaviors like this cause alarm in you? Now you'll notice that in our text, it doesn't condemn such behavior, but you'll also notice that it's sympathetic to those who are a bit surprised by it as well. So our text has told us that Samuel knew his double confirmation, right? Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 9, that, that Saul was the man for the post as king as for the position of king. And Saul knew he was the man with the confirmation of the three signs and the experience of prophesying with the prophets. Now, would this be enough confirmation for you to convince you into taking such a, such a post? To take on the kingship, to do such a monumental task? Would that be enough for you? Verse 14. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? So he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what's what Samuel said to you? So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. Why does Saul answer like this? You know, maybe he was shy or just more reserved at the time. We don't know. Whatever the reason, he's not willing to share with his uncle these bizarre things that just happened to him about his calling. But I think this is pretty normal. It's normal for those of us who have received a calling from the Lord. It starts as a private confirmation. No one knew except for Samuel and Saul. And it happened in a really ordinary way. The people at, at, at the feast, the servant that traveled with Saul, the prophets he prophesied to, the, his uncle, they all didn't know. And it began with the search for donkeys, and it reminds me of my calling. I I had no interest at all going into ministry, none. And and my pastor Raul, who, who's in Southern California, and my ordinary thing at the time, I was I was practicing to be a ninja. I was I was in his I was in his kung fu class. That's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be like a ninja, like him. And that's what I was doing. I was doing an ordinary thing, just practicing what I've been doing my whole life just with him. And, and he came up to me, and he said, go to pastoral school. I'm like, no way, dude. I was like, I want to learn how to kill people. <laughs> right? But then, then he told me that. And so he was my Samuel. He knew way before I did. The call on my life. I had no idea that eight years ago that we were gonna start a church. None. He was my Samuel. He knew way before me. And then and then as he told me these things, I didn't go off telling, hey Dad, you know, I'm Raul told me to be a pastor. He would be like, You're nuts, dude. Right? I, I didn't tell anybody. This was just between me and Raul. And I, I tried my hardest not to get it accepted into the school. I I did everything I could. Like, the on the on the application, the first question is, are you called? No! Big thing like that with an exclamation point. That's all I did. I didn't even fill out anything else. And then they called me back for an interview. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so you had to go through all these series of interviews with different pastors, right? And so the first question they asked, the very first, so are you called to go into the ministry? I'd smile. Like, no. No. I'm not. And, and then we're like, oh, why are you here? I was like, Rawl told me. And so that was it. And that, that's the extent of my interviews, three of them, with, with all the different pastors. Then I get this acceptance letter. <laughs> I'm like, what? I told you I wasn't called. So I called the guy that was the director of the school. I was like, hey, man, what, this is wrong. I'm not called. And he was like, Rawl said so. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I told you I wasn't called. He said, like, yeah, Raul wants you in the school, so you're going to go in the school. Okay, because he can kill me. So I, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to do that. I'll, I'll go to school. So I went to school. And, and then everything just happened from there. But it started with a private confirmation. It wasn't announced in the rooftops. It was just between Raul and I, just like it was between Samuel and Saul. It's the same thing, and that's how God works. And who God calls often comes in very ordinary ways. I was just practicing to be a ninja. Sometimes we ask, why don't we see the Lord work all the time? Why can't we clearly identify what God is doing? Why isn't God more obvious? It's because God often doesn't work that way. That's not how He works. God often uses the ordinary and the routine like He did in chapter 9. He tends to do things in this undercover way among the ordinary and the routine matters of our lives. And we tend to miss it because we're looking for fireworks. We're looking for all this stuff up here when he He just works down here. He's just working down here. And because of this, we don't always clearly see how He's working. And it's just how God often works, which throws off a lot of us in how we think about how God works. When we think, God isn't doing anything in my family. Or God isn't doing anything in this church. It's without vision. It's directionless. There's no leader. There's no leadership. Nothing is happening here. I can't see what God is doing. Of course you don't see what he's doing. You're looking up there. We often don't, but what God has done in private comes to pass even if you don't see it. God does things in very ordinary ways, and often we miss it because we tend to look for the dramatic. We want to look toward something amazing, like amazing transformation in people, or something that we can dramatically experience, that that we can point to. But what about just simple submission to God in obedience? What about that? So we easily overlook how God works because we miss the more mundane things of life, the ordinary things of life. What does the Lord ask of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13? And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. These are just basic demands of obedience. There are no fireworks here. These are all things that God wants, which is everything. This is everything. But you notice that these demands, they're not dramatic. They're ordinary. They're routine. There aren't fireworks flying around when stuff like this happens. These demands are just routine. They're just ordinary. And we are often looking for more dramatic signs. But God tends to work among ordinary things like Love-driven obedience. That what he says, that you do. That's it. And God called, amen. God called a man using lost donkeys. But don't let that sim- simple duty of finding lost donkeys mislead you. Right? God using those donkeys is typical of how he works with his people routine ordinary things then someone in authority in the things of God Samuel was God's instrument in delivering the news of kingship and this was confirmed privately to that man of God it was it was confirmed to him twice Samuel twice and and then it was confirmed three times in a highly personal and private way to, to, to the man called of God Saul and private confirmation that's the first step. And God's work isn't often seen because it happens in really ordinary ways. And next week we'll take a look at the second and third step. first step was private confirmation. May we be sensitive to how God is working among us in our church, in our homes, in, in our work, in our school. And may we not overlook what God is that God is at work, even though it may not seem like it to us. Because it's just in our ordinary things that He's working in. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you work and and how gracious and faithful you are that even though at times we reject you, that you're still always there, that we are so important to you that you had sent your son Jesus to die for us so that we can have relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would bless everyone here for anyone who is discouraged, that you would remind them that they're the apple of your eye and that no one can snatch them away from you. In Jesus' name, amen.